Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do hide us in the cleft of the rock as the words to that song that Irma and Corky played remind us. Father, you hide us in the sense that you cover us by your grace so that we don't face the full vent of your wrath for the sin that we have committed, which we have each and every one committed. Father, such that we are all far, far short of what you desire that we be. Lord, you have revealed yourself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, you have revealed yourself to be so in the enfleshing of the Son in the person of Christ who came and was like us in every way so that in seeing Jesus, we could know how you are, God, in your being. A God who is love. A God who loves us. How do we know that he loves us? The Bible tells us so. Because Christ laid down his life for us. Going to a cross, taking upon himself our sin and our shame, living a life that we could not live, dying on that cross, entering a tomb for three days according to the scriptures, being raised again in accordance with your scriptures so that whoever believes in Jesus has hope, has life. Father, we thank you that you cover us in that way with your righteousness so that now as you look upon us, God, you see the righteousness of Jesus. We don't live in obedience to your word in order to earn your, your favor, but rather because you've already accomplished it all for us. Our hearts have been changed, made alive by grace through faith so that we don't have to obey out of obligation, but rather, God, we obey out of a sense of thanksgiving. Lord, with eyes that have been opened to what life is about. It's not about getting the furthest and the climbing the highest, accomplishing the most, gathering more than others, but rather, it's about the heart. God, and you see the heart. And Lord, it's so often easy to come on a day such as this, to put on our best, to put on an outward appearance, which is what we can only see, and lead those around us to think that we're fine, that we're doing well, that we're, we're honoring you, and that we're, we're, we're okay. When the reality is, God, you see the heart, and it's only your opinion that matters. So God, I thank you for how you strip away our pride when we turn to the gospel, and when you shine the light of your word upon our hearts where we can see whether or not we are joyful, joyful and adoring you. God of glory, Lord of might or whether we are acknowledging you to be worthy over all things or whether we are worshiping idols, the idol of self, of money, of fame. Father, your word reveals those things and brings conviction. And so God, today as we now turn to this word, having sung all of these truths drawn from your word already in worship, giving to you in worship, praying in worship, having studied your scriptures this morning in our smaller settings in Sunday school in worship, God, now we continue in worship by turning to your word and we pray that this word that you proclaim, God, would be what we hear, that Father, you would set aside the the mediator of this word, the medium through which it comes, and allow us to simply hear you 
and you only for your glory we pray in Jesus name amen 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 well this morning we dive back into our series entitled King of Kings and I I'm excited man it's I gotta say it's hard as your pastor to sit down there and have someone else proclaim the gospel to you uh, it, it is a privilege uh, to, to have had this last week, and I want to make sure I, I say again, just voice my appreciation both to my father-in-law as well as to Reverend Holmes who was here last week and shared faithfully with us their willingness to come and proclaim the gospel, God's word to us over these last couple weeks. But uh, it's, it's hard uh, to sit there and not be the man having the privilege of proclaiming the word to you. But I want to thank you also for your prayers and your concern as I traveled back and forth to school, consumed with studies over these last weeks. Safety was one thing that you prayed for, and I appreciate that very much. Also, thank you for the sanity for which you prayed as I sat in seminars with men far wiser than me, and yet hopefully was able to glean from them that which will become a blessing to us all, I hope and pray, in the days that follow. And so, thank you again, and thank you for the privilege of being your pastor. Now, if you have your Bibles, and you haven't opened them already, let me get you to do that with me now, and find 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, and this morning marks, if you've been counting, the third message in the series we're calling King of Kings. And just in light of the interruption of the past couple weeks, I want us to briefly be reminded of all that we have seen to this point before our break. And so we begin by looking together at Israel's desire for a king. 1 Samuel 8, the elders of Israel meet with the prophet Samuel at Ramah and they voice their request. And to all we saw but the most spiritual, sensitively spiritual, their demand, the demand of these elders, was both wise and well-intentioned. I mean, Samuel's sons had failed to follow his lead. The people were suffering under dishonest leadership as well as the threat of foreign oppressors. And so this was a very legitimate request from what we could see at the outset. But as we looked deeper, we saw that this royal request was actually rooted in rebellion. Israel had rejected God as their king and, and his ambassadors, the prophets. They were no longer interested in theocracy. They wanted a monarchy. They wanted to be like all of the surrounding nations that were there. And so, so God in his grace and in his mercy gave them what they desired after warning them of all that their demand would bring. And then heeding Samuel's words, we concluded together by affirming that just like Israel, our hope as men and women, our hope as, as a nation, our hope as the people of God, cannot be and is not in any presidential candidate, a senate or a congress. It isn't in any political entity or earthly king, but may only be in the king of kings, who is Jesus. And then in our second message, we studied Israel's first king, Saul. And we saw together how although he looked like a king, at least what we in our minds would envision a king should look like, although he, although he looked like a king, smelled like a king, spoke like a king, he stumbled in his effort to be the king. And after this great start, at which point God's spirit came over Saul, his spirit of humility was evidenced within Saul. Saul became consumed with himself. Gone was the presence of God's spirit. Gone his zeal for God's glory. Gone his humility before God. And Saul, just like the elders of Israel before him, rejected the Lord as king. And so God rejected Saul. And as we closed that morning, we noted the gospel truth that, that, that just as with, just as with Israel, God is the one who's not concerned with how kingly or, or queenly we may appear on the outside or how sovereign our speech, royal our responses. All that God cares about is our hearts. He alone sees the heart of men and women and by His grace, through faith, He desires to change our hearts so that what was dead 
according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, might have life, be brought to life. And it's this truth that I believe we're going to encounter again today as we study Israel's second king, the standard maker, King David. And so with that said, your Bible's open to 1 Samuel 16. Let me invite you to follow along as I read our first text this morning. It's found in verse 1. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The prophet records that the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse saw Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel went to Ramah. May God bless a public reading of his word. In this text, there is so, so much going on. Like for starters, Samuel's grieving here over Saul. And the Lord's rebuke, which reads like a parent scouting, a scolding like a pouting child, at least in our English renderings. It's interesting, we're not told why Samuel is mourning. But the word that's used there by the Lord is one that refers in the literal sense to the grieving that we would do for the dead. Much like we see in Genesis chapter 37-34 where, where, where Joseph, or Jacob rather, grieves for his sons when his sons, other sons, deceitfully bring him Jacob's bloody coat of many colors. And so you know, it would appear here you know, that despite the warnings that Samuel has, has brought to the people regarding their request for a king, he still held Saul in high regard. And so to see him rejected by the Lord as king just, just breaks Samuel's heart. And then the second thing to notice is this peculiar response of the elders there in Bethlehem who, when Samuel arrives, we're told, are trembling before him. Why in the world would these city leaders tremble, be so fearful of a visit from Samuel? And as with our previous question, textually, we aren't given an answer. But it could be that the news of Saul's rejection as king, as was declared by Samuel and recorded at length in chapter 15, there 1 Samuel 15, had spread, and the leaders of Bethlehem were fearful of Saul's retribution should this neighbor that God had promised to give the kingship to in 1 Samuel 15, 28. If this neighbor was an inhabitant of their town, then they feared Saul's retribution. 
And then there's this third troubling point. We talked about this last night over dinner with uh, Cotter and Emily. This moral dilemma posed by Samuel's half-truth when asked by the elders as to the purpose of his visit. He answers, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, which is true, right? But it's not the whole truth, as we know, because the real reason for which God has sent him to Bethlehem was to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. And since it's the Lord who instructs Samuel as to answer what he's going to answer when asked, it appears, as one commentator observes, that telling a part of what one knows to be true in order to conceal other information is morally right in some situations, particularly adversarial situations such as this one. And that's a slippery slope to start traveling down with, say, your teenager. You know, partial truth is justified. But you hear these are just three examples of all that's going on in this text. And our purpose, but I want us to see together, primarily for what we're looking at, the first point that I want us to see in light of the series is this. And that is that God is the one who chooses David to be king. God chooses David to be king. Because when Samuel arrives there in Bethlehem from Ramah, it was a journey of about 10 miles, he first calms these fears, as we said, of the elders. And then he calls for them to consecrate themselves so they might participate in his sacrifice. He, he then consecrates, according to the text, Jesse's family and extends the invitation to them as well. Now, presumably at this point, Samuel goes on ahead and he finalizes preparations for the sacrifice while these guests see to their own readiness. And then later, everything is complete. Jesse's family arrives and Samuel, who knows the real reason for his visit, is struck at the side of Eliab, Jesse's elder, saying, I just love, don't you love how Samuel's thoughts are? Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. And so it doesn't take much of an imagination to envision the appearance of Eliab here, does it? I mean, especially when you consider and recall the description that was given us of Saul. Saul, we were told, was an impressive young man, without equal among all the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. So with this precedent set and with the influence of outward appearances so established, it's most likely Eliab was tall, well-built, handsome, dashing, smiling. He's got all his teeth and he carries himself you know, with an air of confidence. But as soon as this thought, I love this, passes through Samuel's mind, we're told that the Lord said to him, do not consider his appearance, his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I, I doubt that there are many of us here this morning for whom these powerful words are new, and yet the truth that they unearth is so, so often goes unheeded in our churches. How, how prone are we, am I, just to be awed by the visual, by the physical, biological, by the, the genetic. You know, and guys, I know this isn't dogmatic, but it is most definitely axiomatic. This is a statement of general truth. But men are impressed by outward appearances. Women, <laughs> not so much. Men are visual. Men are vain. At least this man is, and my wife can attest to that. And you probably can as well. But women, they're far more insightful. You know, I remember as a student in high school, we had a young man who, who came to Southern Africa uh, as a part of the IMB as a journeyman. And he was on the mission field for a couple years and assisted a number of the different missionaries with their assignments and such. And so this is the one thing I remember about this young man, Tommy, apart from his unique personality. And we had a number of unique individuals come through our home as a child growing up. But one of the things that I remember, other than his personality, was this guy was a bodybuilder. Tommy was a bodybuilder. And he, he, every time he'd stay at our home, I remember him walking around our house with his shirt off, flexing. 
And I can already see some looks of disgust appearing on some of our ladies' faces. But seriously, my brothers and I were in awe of Tommy's pecs. I mean, this guy, Tommy, was the man. I mean, whenever he, and he could make his chest bounce. It was so cool. And as three little guys who had no chests, I mean, Tommy, we couldn't believe that Tommy was still single. I mean, it was like, are you kidding me? Ladies, look at this man's chest. It's phenomenal. And yet, Tommy, whenever he came on, we kept their shirts on, man. We never took these suckers off. And I thought Tommy was just ripped until I met Tom Owen. Now, Tom Owen was a former Mr. Universe contestant, and he also came to Zimbabwe on a mission project, and he was out there doing, doing different things. I mean, you talk about a sense of, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before you. I mean, this guy, Tom, was huge. And the first time that my brothers and I met Tom, Tommy was there, and Tommy had a shirt on. And I don't think Tommy's shirt came off the entire time he was in the presence of Tom. Nor did I see his flex ever flex. I mean, Tom was absolutely huge. His outward appearance was all, all inspiring, humbling for a guy like me. I and mean, I'm sure this is exactly how Eliab's was. You know, but it isn't the outward appearance that concerns the Lord, is it? Ladies, is it? I mean, sadly, men, our wives are far more attuned to the Spirit of God than we tend to be when it comes to these things. Not always. But generally, and Samuel, being a typical male, he's awed by Eliab's appearance, but the Lord rejects him. And then the Lord proceeds to reject every one of Jesse's sons, despite their outward appearances being to the contrary, until he's introduced to the youngest, to the shepherd boy who's out in the fields, to David. Why? Because God is only concerned with the heart. And church, the truth that I hope and pray that we see here in this text this truth has massive implications for us today. We who, who, like Samuel, are prone to worry solely about the outward at the, at the cost of the inward. The Lord is the one who looks at the hearts. And the question that would naturally follow as we hear this truth is, well, what kind of, what kind of heart is God looking for? What kind of heart does God see in a man like this? And I believe that we're given glimpses of this heart throughout the course of David's life. And so having seen God choose him to be king, I want us to move on to a point in David's life where we see God protect David as king. God protect David as king. And let me just go ahead and voice a frustration that I had in preparing this sermon this morning. And that is that there is just so much amazing text regarding David throughout the Old Testament, which isn't a bad thing. That's not what frustrated me. But it was so hard trying to decide what do we spend the time looking at together? What do we excise in order so that we can, we can be finished on time? And so I want to read just a portion of one of the most iconic stories I believe there is in the Scriptures, and that is David and Goliath. And so if you want to follow along, flip over just a couple chapters to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18, and I want to begin reading from verse 20. 1 Samuel 18. This is God's protecting David as king. 1 Samuel 18, verse 20, begins, Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the armies, or the Philistines, were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He ran to the battle lines, and he greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give 
great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage, and he will exempt his family, his father's family, from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Let me me just stop right there. As I am sure many of you know, in this story, David is sent out to the front lines by his father Jesse to check on his brother's well-being. And they're all encamped, as we saw together, there with Saul in the valley of Eli, across from the armies of the Philistines. And when Goliath appears, you notice how our text says that it's when the Israelites saw, when they saw the man, they all ran in great fear. So the outward appearance in this instance induces fear rather than awe. It's incredible but sad that Saul, who has been requested by this people, that he might lead them out, that he might go before them, that he might might fight their battles. Saul's deferred, and he's decided that it's a whole lot safer to bribe somebody else to go and do this for him. And it's so interesting, that, for me at least, that in this bribe that Saul offers, it's exactly the opposite of what Samuel had told the people that your king, Saul, is going to take from you. You notice here, he promises the man who kills Goliath his daughter, great wealth, and his family's going to get a tax break. The thing that Samuel had said that the king will take from you will be your daughters, your possessions, and a tax on all of your family's produce. But you notice, notice, you notice David's response to what he hears? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is incensed by the blasphemy he's heard and the arrogance of this pagan adversary. David's heart is zealous for the glory of God. And his passion is even more clearly expressed later, verse 45, when on the field of battle, David declares to Goliath, you come against me with a sword a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the what? The name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David wasn't merely a patriot. His righteous anger here wasn't raised due to Goliath's verbal abuse of his nation's military. No, David was enraged that this incensed, that this uncircumcised Philistine would dare to sully the name of the Lord God Almighty. And church, it's, it's this zeal that David evidences for the glory of God, that God desires to be present in our hearts because it's a reflection of his own heart. You know, several weeks ago, we saw together that when God acts, when he acts, he acts to fulfill his plans, not our petitions. You know, the Lord promised not to reject Israel for the sake of his great name because the Lord was pleased to make them his own. And when God looked at David's heart, he saw a zeal for the glory of his name. And church, I pray that our hearts reflect this same passion, desperation even, just as Christ, we saw in the New Testament, cleansed the temple. Why? Because this is where God had promised Solomon, I have consecrated this temple by putting my name there forever. 1 Kings 9.3 So the heart that, that reflects the heart of God is zealous for the glory of his name. But it also reflects a childlike faith in God. It reflects the glory of His name. It also reflects a childlike faith in God. Do you notice immediately after expressing this indignation at Goliath's insult, David gets summoned to Saul's tents where he's told, look at verse 33 with me. Look at verse 33. Saul says, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been fighting a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion 
or a bear came and carried off sheep on the clock, I, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Guys, David doesn't hesitate. He shows no fear here in the face of insurmountable odds. He simply has faith. Faith, faith that God is passionate for the glory of his name. Faith, faith that God will not share his glory with another. That God will not allow his reputation to be sullied, even by some supersized Philistine samurai. David's response in this instance reveals a heart filled with the faith that Jesus later describes as childlike. It's the kind of faith that Christ says if we possess it, then we can say to this mountain, go jump in the sea and it'll happen. It's ludicrous, right? And yet how ludicrous is David's confidence here in the face of this Philistine foe? And church, well, I, this is the heart that I pray that each and every one of us has and is praying daily that God would recreate a new in us that we might be made more and more into the image of the King of Kings, Jesus, who, who in the face of unspeakable anguish and pain was able to pray what? Not my will, but your will, Father. Christ has perfect faith in the Father, knowing that what He wills is right. And so God chooses David to be king. God protects David as king. And this is just one instance of said protection. I mean, there are countless others in the Scriptures as David has to run from Saul. In one instance, it's Saul's own daughter, David's wife, that, that protects him. Another time, it's Saul's son, Jonathan, that gives him aid. There's another time where David pretends to be crazy in front of the, the king Achish of Gath. And at another point, David's hiding in a cave where Saul comes to take care of business. And I mean, these are great stories, if you haven't read them, of God's continued protection of David. But I want us to see now a third point. We've seen God's selection of David. We've seen God's protection of David. So I want to see a third point this morning. And that is God's establishing David as king. God establishes David as king. So flip over with me in your Bibles just quickly to, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel and find chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. It's at this point in, in David's reign that God has given him victory over all of his enemies. Uh, there's peace in the land of Israel. David's seen many battles. He's seen and shed much blood as he's driven the enemies of God from the land that was promised to the people of God. And then once peace is achieved, David says to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in this palace of cedar and, and the ark of God remains in the tent. David's in the capital city, Jerusalem, and yet the ark of God, which has resided in the tabernacle throughout Israel's wanderings in the desert, still remains in the tent. And so passionate for the glory of God's name, David desires to build a house for the Lord. So Nathan encourages David. He says, go for it, man. And that night, however, the Lord sends a message to David. It says that while your heart is right, it's not your task to accomplish and yet God then goes on and makes a promise to David. And I want us to read that promise together. So if you're in 2 Samuel 7, I want you to look at verse 16 with me. 2 Samuel verse 16, chapter 7. This is what God says to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And then the king, David, went and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And, and as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? 
What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. And David's, David's prayer then continues for another seven verses that are just replete with expressions of humility and joy. And church, this is the mark of the fourth attribute of the heart that God desires. Reverent humility before God. Reverent humility before God. David has just been denied the privilege of building the temple for the Lord his God. It was his idea. It is the desire of his heart. But the Lord says no. And instead, a promise is made to the future, to one who will be of the offspring of David. Such as David's house, his kingdom is going to last forever. And David's immediate response is, who am I, Lord? I don't deserve this. Who am I? And church, as we consider the heart that God sees, that he desires to see, it must be marked by such humility. I mean, who among us can say to God, I deserve the love with which you have showered me. I have earned your forgiveness, or I've warranted the salvation, this work of salvation in my life. Who? I mean, church, we, we each and every one ought to cry out like David, who am I, God, that you could love me and save me by your grace for your glory? This is a hymn writer, Charles Gabriel, so beautifully expressed it. I stand, what? Amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song will ever be. It's not going to change. How marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. So God chooses David as king. God protects David as king. He establishes David as king. And then finally, he forgives David as king. God forgives David as king. It's our final point for this morning. I want you to flip over with me just one more time. This find, find chapter 12 there, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. And in, and in this chapter, which I would imagine is familiar to many, David's life is such that many of these stories are very familiar to many of us, but in this chapter, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's conspired then to have her husband Uriah murdered after learning she's pregnant. And then with him dead, he brings Bathsheba to live in the palace. Now, you remember that this, this is the king whose heart God looked at whose outward appearance he didn't look and consider himself or concern himself with, and then later of whom the Apostle Paul would write in the sermon in, in Pisidian Antioch that God has testified concerning him, that's David, I have found, David son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now, how do we reconcile what takes place there in David's life with this heart that God is describing? And I believe that the answer is given to us there, 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13. I want you to look at verse 13. This is David's public response to Nathan's public rebuke. Verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then David would later write an entire psalm, Psalm 51, detailing his conviction of sin. It's a conviction that I believe serves as the final heart attribute for us this morning. And so the heart that God desires, that he looks to see, is a heart that's zealous for the glory of his name. It has a childlike faith in him, a reverent humility before him, and then is broken over sin against him. Have mercy on me, David cries out, Psalm 51. Have 
mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love. According to Your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Why? For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against You and You only have I sinned and done what is evil in Your sight so that You are proved right, O God, when You speak and justified when You judge. Friends, I pray, I pray that we all know this conviction from God and that You've come to the point where You've recognized that You are not good. Nobody is good. No one. There's no such thing as a good person for all have sinned, made mistakes, whether it's stealing your neighbor's toy rifle as a child, lying to your parents about it, cheating on your taxes, doing drugs, having sex outside of marriage or with someone who isn't your spouse. You know, whatever. We've all sinned. Everyone. And this sin is against God and God only. And yes, our sins, public though they may be, cause and affect others to fall and struggle. And there's a great deal of pain that comes with all of that. But the others aren't the measure of what's right and wrong. Others aren't the pendulum against which we, we measure what is moral and what is not. God alone is. Therefore, sin is always only against God. And the heart that David had, the heart that mirrors the heart of God, is a heart that's broken over sin. And God's heart was broken over sin such that He would send Himself, His Son in flesh, in the person of Christ, who became as one of us, incarnates Himself, submits Himself to the will of the Father, so that He might come and live the life that you and I could not live. Every time you and I are born into this body of flesh, it pulls to the right and straight into the ditch of death. No matter how hard you try or I try to keep the sucker on the road, it's not going to happen. Because we are incapable of living the life that God has called for us to live. But Christ came and enfleshed Himself and got in this vehicle and drove it straight to the end and accomplished the purpose that God had made for man. That He might live the life we could not. And then He died on a cross and He paid the penalty of death that each and every one of our sin had, had incurred. He was buried in the tomb for three days and just as the Scriptures promised, He rose again so that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. Christ has lived. He has died. He has obeyed so that we don't have to. He's given us life in Jesus. You know, as, and as amazing as we think of David as a standard maker, as amazing as a king as David was, and as much as his heart reflected that of God, such that he did later throughout the Scriptures, and as we'll see going forward. He's the one to whom everyone is compared. He didn't or did follow God like David. He still, David did, fell far short of the glorious perfection set for us by the King of Kings, who is Jesus. And guys, I pray you know this Jesus. You, like David, have a heart that is zealous for the glory of God. A heart that places childlike faith in God. As we hear the Gospel and as God's Spirit brings us to life, we are enabled in that moment to then have faith and place our faith in this Jesus. And then have a heart that bows in humble reverence before our God and as we sin is broken and convicted of sin against God. For not a single one of us, once we follow Christ, becomes perfect in what we do. We can't. That's not possible. But God has given us grace. And so as we make mistakes, we're convicted by God and we must make public public conviction and public repentance of what we've done. 
And the beauty of the gospel is that we are forgiven. And God heals and restores. That is the beauty of the heart that God sees. And I hope and pray that each and every one of us is praying for God to make that heart in us each and every day, living in light of His Word so that we might evidence this heart to the world so that they might see the hope we have in the face of all of the changes that we're encountering. So I hope you have this heart. And if you don't, in a moment, we're going to stand and sing. I'm going to ask you to find me down front or talk to the person beside you. If you don't have confidence that these are the attributes that your heart is beginning to evidence by the grace of God. But would you pray with me? Father, we thank you and we praise you that you look at the heart. Father, we are such a superficial society consumed with how we are viewed from the outside. But the beauty of the gospel is that the outside is unimportant. The only thing that matters is that which you alone can see, and that is our hearts. And Father, as your gospel shines on our hearts and reveals just how depraved we are, each and every one, Father, we are sinful from the time of conception. But God, you come and by grace you transform. You give us a new heart so that what was once dead, blind, unable to, to, to hear and to comprehend the foolishness of the cross comes alive and begins to recognize exactly what you did for us, the lengths to which you went to show us your love. And God, as we come to life and are led by your grace and the power of your Spirit to, to obediently respond in faith, God, you transform us and make us into your children. And God, we then begin the journey being made daily into the image of the King of Kings. And God, we thank you that as we look to the Word of God, we see evidences of others who while they may have been better, we see they weren't the one. As great a king as David was. Lord, that because not a single one of us can be good enough to merit salvation, which is why you sent your Son, Jesus. God, thank you that we are saved by grace. And that this frees us to live in light of this grace in obedience to your word so that others might see and be, be drawn to, to, to experience the gospel as we have. Father, thank you for this beautiful truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.